Hello and welcome to On Liberty, coming to you live from the Centre for Independent Studies here in Sydney. I'm Glenn Fay, your host for today's episode, and today I'm joined by Mark Latham. Mark is a member of the New South Wales Legislative Council and he's chair of the New South Wales Parliamentary Committee on Education. In addition to that, he's been a guest at CIS in various capacities for over 25 years. Uh, Mark, welcome back to CIS. Thanks, Glenn. Always good to be with you. I've referenced the the parliamentary committee that that uh, that you chair, and um, for those for those in the audience that maybe have not followed it as closely as the two of us have, uh, it's it's ultimately looking into issues impacting upon the teacher workforce. and And I'll quote from its um, from the media release in which it was announced: uh, Committee expects to make important recommendations that will build on the ranks of high quality teachers in the New South Wales school system, with the end goal of a teaching workforce with the size, strength and skill to deliver the excellent education that we all want for our children, which of course is a really laudable laudable aim. How do you rate the current size, strength and skill of the teacher workforce? Well, if you look at it by the results we've got, New South Wales has the fastest falling uh, student academic results in the world, uh, not just in Australia, in the world. And um, Jeff Masters said that, the government's chosen curriculum reviewer said that uh, our 20-year decline on PISA and MAPLAN results has been disastrous. So we've got work to do if teachers are, and the research is accurate, uh, teachers are the um, most important influence on student learning. Well, the quality of teaching obviously needs to be lifted to restore New South Wales to, um, to where it needs to be, at the top of the Australian ladder and much higher on the international scale. So. Part of our inquiry is about the teacher shortage problems that we've got at the moment, but I think the bigger issue is how do we turn teaching in New South Wales into a modern, dynamic, well-rewarded, satisfying profession, a proper profession, no, not with some of the sheltered workshop tendencies that are in the current industrial arrangement struck by the Teachers' Federation. I mean, teachers themselves deserve a lot better than their union has given them over many, many years, and they deserve a lot better than the current New South Wales government policies. So what are some of those shortcomings that, that the union and perhaps uh, some of the departments or bureaucratic uh, obligations, what are the, some of the things that are limiting teachers, the teaching profession's potential? Well, teacher salaries start out uh, at a pretty good level um, for uh, people coming out of the, the university system. But then the system of promotion and higher financial reward five, 10, 15 years into their service is rudimentary. It's it's too slow, uh, and that's where teachers fall behind in terms of financial rewards. Why has that happened? Uh, it's because the union has traded away those financial rewards for some bizarre, soft, cushy industrial conditions. For instance, uh, the schools are closed for 12 weeks every year. Uh, four weeks, teachers would take annual leave. The other eight weeks, teachers are being paid, but they're not at the workplace. They're not actually at the school. And the education department has a policy of never asking what the teachers are doing during those eight weeks. Now, Glenn, how many professions are out there? How many jobs are out there where your boss doesn't ask you for eight weeks of paying you what you're actually doing during that time? Now, the Federation and, and some teacher advocacy groups will say, oh, we're working really hard. But I think if you went and checked some Facebook pages and all that, there's a fair number of teachers who you know, are up the Gold Coast or on holidays and and what you know human nature would do so that's one example another one there are no formal 
teacher work hours. It's not a nine to three specification. It's not eight to five. Uh, it's supposed to be 40 hours a week, but you know, it, it varies. So um, a, a third example I can give is that if a teacher takes long service leave, they have an industrial entitlement to come back to the school in a job share position. They might do two days in the classroom, another teacher comes in for three, different teaching methods, disrupts the class, it's not good for learning, but that's an industrial condition. I don't know why if you take your long service leave, you get to uh, pick and choose a job share uh, if you want it. So, and I could go on and on. There's dozens of these conditions written in over the years in lieu of financial uh, rewards, uh, pay increases. And that's where we've landed today where teaching is not seen as a modern, dynamic, challenging, well-rewarded profession. Um, unfortunately, it's seen by too many young people as social work and uh, the sort of thing you do if you're looking for, you know, the, the 12 weeks holiday a year. So to be fair upon teachers, though, they're, they're asked, the, the, the nature of the work has changed a lot over the years. The, the obligation upon teachers is not just providing a lesson, uh, marking and then calling it quits. It is a demanding profession, uh, a profession that sometimes can be thankless. Um, and sometimes it does have you know, quite long hours, uh, including a lot of meaningless time. How would you improve, in addition, you know, not just the, uh, the, the, the a better use of the non-teaching hours and recording of those, what are the things within teaching hours that might make better use of teachers' valuable time? Well, uh, some teachers work very long hours, others don't. Uh, it's a mixed bag, and quite frankly, the system doesn't really know yeah. too accurately who's doing what. So I think to formalise the hours, eight to five, to say in those eight weeks that I mentioned earlier on, eight weeks of student holiday, the teachers should be at their workplace doing lesson plans, marking end of term exams, looking at student uh, achievement data, um, uh, doing collaborative professional development. And, and that's a, a very effective use of time to actually be in the workplace instead of home, unsupervised and unknown as to what you're actually doing. So I think we've got to make teaching a modern profession with performance pay, with performance assessment, with much faster promotion for high quality people, for much bigger financial rewards for high quality teachers. So, you know, teaching should be no different to any other profession. At the moment, it's uh, industrial arrangements are nowhere near uh, the, the values and standards of a modern professional uh, job. Well, to be fair, I mean, the, the committee has, has looked at this issue in quite a lot of detail. Uh, in 2019, that um, the, the same committee that that's that, that you chair that presides is presiding over the teacher workforce question today is also presided over an inquiry into measurement and outcomes based funding, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the issues floated there were very much in, in the vein that you've just alluded that performance assessment and recognition seem to be broken down. Performance management seems to be inconsistent and, and uh, lacking for many teachers. How can it be that, that even with the, the uh, a very detailed report and with, I think, was it 50 odd recommendations that, that came out of it? How can we still be in that situation today? Well, we're not the minister. We're not the government. We're an upper house committee. Uh, the minister did adopt some of our recommendations. But, you know, let's just take one thing you mentioned there, performance assessment. The 2019 Auditor General's report did a, a sample of what schools are doing in terms of classroom monitoring of teachers, classroom observation, because uh, the research shows that um, an effective feedback loop to say to a teacher, we've watched you in the classroom, this is how you can improve your classroom practice. 
that can improve student results by 30%, a massive outcome. And formally in New South Wales, every teacher is supposed to be observed twice a year and get that feedback loop. The Auditor General found that less than 10% of schools are actually doing the two supposedly mandatory observations. And even when they do, the teacher gets to choose who the observer is. So they obviously choose someone pretty friendly to them. And to have a written assessment of how the teacher's going in classroom practice and effectiveness, the teacher needs to sign off on the written assessment before it goes into the system. So if there's heavy criticism, the teacher says, no, 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 you can't say that. So, I mean, it, it's like a, a self-monitoring uh, process, which is useless in terms of actually getting outcomes with better classroom practice and better student results. So there's a classic uh, failing. And, and why is that happening? The, the union signed an industrial agreement uh, with a, a foolish government way back when that basically operates as a protection racket for underperforming teachers. To say the union wants to keep its numbers up and we're not going to actually do the classroom observation to see who's underperforming and who's not. In the UK, they have a very effective standard that probably there's 3% underperforming teachers uh, every year and you've got to move them on to something else. Uh, in New South Wales, the teachers moved on for a lack of performance, less than 0.1% of the cohort. So we're not fed income in terms of performance assessment, performance pay, or upgrading what teachers do in the classroom to give the students a better quality of teaching. Well, if only 0.1% of teachers are dismissed for underperformance, maybe maybe our teachers in New South Wales are are all performing at, at just a much higher level. That, that, oh, uh, well, what... <laughs> Glenn, yeah, but Glenn, if that's the case, why have we got the fastest falling school academic results over the last 20 years? I mean, it doesn't square, does it? The evidence says there's a problem. Now, I'm not saying teachers are the entirety of the problem. They're not. But um, whether you're a high quality or a struggling teacher, a new or an old teacher, you will improve from classroom observation that gives you good feedback about how you can do better. And we're not doing that at the moment uh, because the, the union is, is running this protection for underperformers. The department doesn't move any underperformers on mainly because they don't know who they are. And that is just hopelessly inadequate. You've got to have a feedback loop. All the research from John Hattie down shows that a feedback loop to teachers in their classroom practice is the best way of getting better results for the students. And as far as I've read, numbers in the vicinity of 75 to 85% of teachers say that they really do want to see them see reward and recognition for their work. Surely, it, if given that such a large preponderance of teachers what, do feel that there's a lack of uh, performance management or opportunity to advance, surely teachers would welcome, a, a, or many teachers, perhaps not all, but many teachers, I suspect, would welcome a, a greater performance management system because it recognises the value of the work that they do and get, gives just the basic performance management you'd expect in any modern occupation. Exactly. I mean, if you're a teacher who's got confidence in, in, in your work and you believe you're doing a good job, and you're adding significant value to the results of your students every year, well, you'd like to know, wouldn't you, that you've added 10, 15% of value to that class. Um, you're given them much more than one day of learning for one day of school. Uh, you've added value. You're a high achiever. It may be in a low socioeconomic area. You're lifting disadvantaged kids to a better life. Well, you should be rewarded by the government financially for that performance. You should be acknowledged for it, and there should be performance pay. So that's a modern professional standard. I mean, who, who wants to do a job where you never really find out how well you're going? 
So in theory, we have uh, highly accomplished and lead teachers, which do attract a, a higher level of pay and do meet, do go through quite an exhaustive process in which to be recognised for that that's, um, that accreditation status. Is that the most effective way we can recognise our best teachers? Uh, well, uh, that system is is paltry in terms of the numbers of stu uh, teachers who are recognised as um, as um, highly accomplished and lead teachers. Again, that was a criticism of the Auditor General's report three years ago, and they're only just starting to promise that they're going to solve the problem. I'd rather have a performance assessment accurate and rigorous for every teacher in the classroom and performance of pay uh, accordingly. I think that would be the, the best system rather than uh, notional categories about uh, highly accomplished and lead teachers. They help, but they should be secondary to a broader comprehensive system of performance assessment and performance pay. So one one uh, proposal that, that you've alluded to a little here is, is that if you formalise the non-teaching work hours for, for uh, for teachers, particularly those who are using that time in the non-teaching weeks to uh, develop lesson plans or to uh, upgrade their own skills, um, that they could be re rewarded with a 10% pay increase. How would how would that ultimately work? Would would teachers maybe opt in or opt out based upon their own commitments, whether they wanted to uh, attract that supplement? Um, what would what, how would you see something like that working? Well, if you're paid, I, I think you should be in the workforce. And, and in the workplace and 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 have a system where the, your principal and, and the education department knows what you're doing. So at the workplace, there's plenty of things to be done in the eight weeks I've mentioned. A 10% pay increase in the current environment is, is very generous, but it would be a productivity based on, on the assumption we're going to get many more teachers doing uh, important work during the eight-week period that I'm talking about. And, um, and there's a lot of work to be done in, in the different, under the different headings that I mentioned earlier on. So we've got to pay teachers more. Uh, I've no doubt about that. Um, not, not so much at the starting level, but 5, 10, 15 years into their service. We've got to promote the good ones faster. We've got to do something realistic about the underperformers. And we've got to have performance pay where if you're in a disadvantaged school, or any school really, getting uh, you know, 10, 15, 20% value added, to the um, above expectations, to the performance of your students, you should receive a significant performance bonus and, and recognition by your peers and, and, and by the government. So, you know, I think they're the modern professional standards we need. Uh, and without those, what is the alternative? Basically, the Teachers' Federation position is to say the sort of people we want to attract into teaching are those who want to see uh, uh, the job become easier, reduce the workload, but realistically, Glenn, is there a successful person in the country who hasn't got a significant workload? I mean, hard work is a good thing. We want hardworking teachers, but they've got to be rewarded for it and they've got to be assessed for how effective they are. It seems to me that it's, it's the, yes, the aggregate number of hours is, is something to consider for teachers, but it seems to me in survey, survey responses and the like that report extremely high levels of burnout seems to be related not so much to the hours that teachers work, but what they're tasked with doing. It seems to me that being asked to do uh, the, the amount of time spent with admin, the amount of paperwork, the amount of compliance, is is it a matter of maybe just rejigging some of the duties that, we're, that we put upon teachers rather than necessarily just say, hey, here's have three hours less working a week? Well, you've got to uh, drill into what we're talking about with uh, paperwork and administration. 
in that earlier inquiry on um, on outcomes and measurement three years ago, we had a very impressive principal from Western Sydney come in, Manisha Gazula, who said, um, I don't really see this workload problem at my school because we run a boot camp at the start of the year to get the discipline right, to minimise teacher telling time, you know, tell the kids to sit up straight, get your books and pens out and maximise learning time. And we don't have a discipline problem. So she says, I don't have a lot of paperwork because I don't have a long line of students outside my office door uh, waiting to be suspended or disciplined or fill out a form about something they did in the playground. So I think the um, widespread decline in school discipline is one of the reasons why so many forms have got to be filled out about incidents that wouldn't happen in a properly disciplined school. So, you know, I, I think that's a big part of the solution. And the other aspect of workload is why have we ever got into, at some schools, now seeing their primary function, not academic or vocational attainment for students, but well-being? There's no evidence in many, many studies, no clear evidence that schools can teach well-being. There's no evidence that teachers trained as medicos. But some schools now sort of see themselves as the equivalent of a community health centre and have downgraded the importance of academic and disadvantage tragedy. So, so we've got to be realistic at what schools can do. They can teach numeracy and literacy. They do it the right way. They can get those outcomes. There's no evidence base to say uh, well-being um, is, is, is going to be achieved uh, for those students. If they've got well-being and mental health issues, we've got a multi-billion dollar funded health system for that. So I think the answer is a discipline and returning schools to their core purpose of academic and vocational results. Look, there's a lot in that. I mean, at least from my perspective, that there's a comparative advantage question there. That who is best best able to deliver uh, effectively solutions around well-being? That's potentially outside of the school. Maybe the school can serve as a signalling mechanism to help alert those authorities. Um, but what is teachers' time best used? That well, that's teaching. Teachers are expert at teaching, and uh, every, every moment that they're not doing that, of course, it, it's it's taking away from what they're very best at and where they can have the most impact. But I mean, that that's that's that, that, that well, it's a huge it's a huge issue. Can I just say one of the reasons the well-being agenda has become so popular is how do you measure it? Oh, the kids are happy, and how do you measure it? Just so they they tick the box. Yeah, oh, I'm pretty happy at school. The parents say, yeah, the kid, the kid seems a bit happier than last year. That's really not what a school should be about. I mean, happiness is not going to get you a good job. Happiness is not going to get you a career that's satisfying uh, for, for 30, 40 or 50 years. So um, it's easy work to say, oh, the kids are happy and do the things that make them happy, but it's not what a school should be. I want to draw your attention to a couple of quotes this week from Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. He's been uh, very active in, in areas of education and particularly the intersection of education and, and cultural issues. On the first of these, and I'll, I'll get you to respond to a couple of them, but the first of these relates to initial teacher education that he observes over in Florida. I'm curious if you think that a similar theme exists here. He says, most people who choose teaching as a profession do it to help students, yet many feel that they've become a cog in some indoctrination machine. Is that something that you think would resonate with um, some teachers in the New South Wales system? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, too many teachers are engaging in political indoctrination in the classroom. And you look at some of the stuff that's taught in the university uh, teacher colleges, well, that's where it all starts. And those colleges have got a lot to answer for because they've got an attrition rate 
of um, 50%, so half drop out, uh, and, and then only half of those um, remaining uh, get a job as teachers. So their success rate in the university uh, system is very low. And part of that is that they put too much emphasis on well-being and also political indoctrination material uh, for the teachers to then take to the classroom. So Ron DeSantis is 100% correct. The university colleges have got to go back to two important things. One, uh, academic and vocational attainment, forget the politics. And secondly, they've got to adopt a more an apprenticeship type model of teacher training where there's a theory, but it's immediately tested by practice in the classroom. Um, and we've had some very impressive evidence from Alpha Cruz's uh, college, which is um, outside the existing university type system, uh, their apprenticeship model for, for teachers, and I've seen it myself in Newcastle to work very effectively, they get a 95% retention rate, only 5% dropout of the uh, trainee teachers who start their course. So, you know, the results are clear and we've got to go further down that model. Well, it, I mean, it, that, that of all the things, and our research shows this, and and is brought, is is uh, developed based upon quite a big evidence base in the US that's looked at this, and the length of the, as far as teacher preparation goes, the length of time people study for, the level of qualification, the type of qualification, how much general pedagogy they do, these things all seem to make a little bit of difference. But what makes the most difference consistently? is the quality and length of time spent in schools because it clearly complements the theoretical knowledge. If, if we know this from international data, why has it taken so long to bring such models to school systems at large here in New South Wales? Well, the traditional method's been that, you know, they do three years, four years at the university and then only go into the classroom to do their practice. So the practice got to be integrated from day one and that's the Alpha Crucis model that's getting such good results, but, you know, we've got to shine a light on what these universities are doing. I've, I've been to schools where, you know, high achieving schools in disadvantaged areas where the principal will say, we get new teachers out of uni and quite frankly, the less they teach them, the better, because I can tip into uh, an emptier vessel, the model that we use at this school that actually works for us. I don't find that the university content is all that effective once these new teachers get into the classroom. So that's a damning, damning commentary on the failure of our university education um, system. So um, we've got to do a lot better on, 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 on the quality of it, on the content, and to turn it more into the apprenticeship model that uh, gets a 95% retention rate. We're not burning people off or losing them in such large numbers as we have at the moment, contributing to teacher shortages. So I mean, one of the issues that seem to be raised when we talk about the pipeline question of teachers, that is not necessarily bringing through enough new teachers to meet future demand. Most of the explanations that I hear to this are that, well, the issue is that teachers are dropping out or potential teachers are dropping out of their, their degrees because they're put off by teaching in some way or they're... they're Observe that maybe um, they're not they're not valued. Teachers are not well enough valued by society, and so on. You, there's a, a whole series of potential explanations there that all appear to have nothing to do with the effectiveness of the initial teacher education providers. Surely, the university providers of initial teacher education have got to wear some of the responsibility for these extremely high uh, attrition rates from their degrees. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's publicly funded through the university system and 50% of the teachers are dropping out before they even think about getting to the classroom. So it's a shocking attrition rate. The Alpha Crucis alternative 
has reduced that attrition rate to just 5%. So that, that, that's working. I, I saw this model at uh, St Philip's College in the Newcastle suburb of Waratah. And the trainee teachers, because they're doing prac, they're in the classroom with mentors from day one in their course, were very um, uh, engaged, enthusiastic, uh, capable. Uh, they were very much thinking, this is why I started a teaching degree. Uh, to be here in the classroom and, and it makes sense doesn't it? you can hear in a university lecture theater a bit of theory but if it doesn't work in the classroom in practice it's useless to you so they get to test that uh, straight away instead of waiting years to find out what actually works in the classroom so there is a better alternative and i was glad to hear uh, jason clare the new federal minister and some of the state ministers saying it needs to be more like an apprenticeship model well if that's the case fund up alpha crucis they don't get any Commonwealth-supported places at the moment. How's, how bad is that? The thing that's working is not Commonwealth-funded. The things that aren't working in the university system are Commonwealth-funded. Go figure. <laughs> Go figure, indeed. Uh, I'd like to run one other quote from Ron DeSantis by you. And this is about the, the makeup within the teacher workforce. And, and for, for context, at the time he made this, he was suggesting that teaching might be an option for uh, retired veterans and, and police officers that wanted to continue their public service and maybe consider teaching as part of that. But, but he says, we would prefer people with real world experience and academic proficiency in the core subjects they're teaching, not just saying, oh, I went to a school of education somewhere and they taught me some kind of how to teach methods. What are the kind of skills and, and backgrounds that we could bring in New South Wales teaching that would bring a more diversity of, of experiences and backgrounds. Yeah, well, we should be trying to encourage people, uh, successful people in other professions, uh, business leaders, community leaders, uh, to make a career change and come into teaching, to do a, uh, a short course to develop the basic skills and then use their general aptitude and inspiration in the classroom to get results. So I think teaching... Uh, in the Teachers Federation model is that you need to do the university degree before anyone is called a teacher. Well, you can be a teacher of many things without uh, necessarily having that diploma on the wall. So, um, yeah, I think we should be trying to encourage uh, people from a, a range of backgrounds to come in as mature age, career changers. And the Teach for Australia program, so resisted in New South Wales, has been successful in some other states. It's one good example of what can work. And there should be a diversity of uh, backgrounds and, and, and attitudes and, 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 and teaching inspiration that comes to the classroom. So you don't have to be a school leaver doing a university degree. You can be someone um, a bit more worldly, a bit more experienced in life and be a great teacher. Uh, and we just really need those people. I'd like, we've only got a few minutes remaining, but I'd like to also run a bonus uh ron DeSantis quote by you as well which okay. uh, <laughs> i'm agreeing uh, with him i mean ron DeSantis. i wish he was the education minister in new south wales but i think his transfer fee would be too high he's going to run for president <laughs> isn't he well well we couldn't possibly couldn't possibly offer an opinion on that one but he says uh his vision is to make florida the place where woke goes to die he says in part that he will not let the state descend into a woke dumpster fire what's what do you think do you think new south wales needs some sort of leadership like that yeah i wish uh, new south wales was the place where woke would go to die and there's an example today in the daily telegraph a parent who contacted me worried that their six-year-old child in year one was doing a nadoc 
colouring in exercise that told them Australia is a genocidal nation, they should support Black Lives Matter, and that we've, we're still stealing Indigenous kids and Indigenous wages. So these are lies told to six-year-olds in the school system in New South Wales under Sarah Mitchell um, that uh, teach little kids to hate Australia. I mean, there's a role in the education system to give a balanced view of Australian history and certainly teach many of the things uh, about Australian achievements and pride in our nation. So um, we've got terrible examples. And I, I say to these teachers, uh, pushing indoctrination of a political kind, there's plenty of political elections you can run for. There's local government, there's state, there's federal. If you really want to be a politician and engage and take your political things out, don't do it on little kids. Run at election time and see how you go. But in the classroom, stick to numeracy, literacy, and the basic skills that are needed, particularly for six-year-old kids who I'm afraid wouldn't even know what genocide is or what Black Lives Matter is all about. These are adult concepts being pushed onto six-year-old children. It's a disgrace. I'm sure we could go on for, for hours on that particular topic, but uh, that is all we have time for, for On Liberty today. Uh, thanks for all those that have viewed the program. And Mark, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. And thanks for your work, Len. You came to our committee and sort of heard from the socialist left trying to attack your credentials. I thought your submission for the CIS was fantastically comprehensive and informative. So we also thank you for your work. Pleasure. Uh, and for, for those who follow On Liberty, we're back again uh, in two weeks' time at our regular time slot on Wednesday at 12.30pm. We hope to see you again uh, for our next episode of On Liberty. Uh, bye for now.